It's been a while since we've spoken our values together out loud, including those of us at home, so uh, I thought it might be good for us to start in that place uh, this morning, including those of you who are at home. So um, we're going to put those up on the screen. If you've already memorized our values, don't look. If you're still memorizing our values, you can peek. But let's speak those words together. Following the Lord Jesus, we strive to love all people unconditionally, serve our neighbors generously, advance God's purposes globally, pour into the next generation intentionally, and cultivate spiritual growth continuously. Good. And as we continue this morning in our study of Mark's gospel, we're going to see some of those, and I want you to see some of those. We want you to see some of those popping up and uh, coming out of the scriptures because it's based on the scriptures that we derive those and they give us guidance. Before we jump in though, I want to pray, especially as things aren't going to get much easier this week uh, than they were the last couple of weeks. Uh, As we've been talking uh, our way through Mark's gospel, we've come across some difficult passages all along the past year. Uh, The last couple of weeks were particularly difficult, talking about Uh, divorce and marriage, and then the kingdom of God and wealth and what that means. And what we're talking about this morning is going to be, uh, in some ways, equally difficult. So uh, let's pray. Pray with me. Gracious God, as we open the scriptures together, we want you to be our teacher. Help us to be attentive students, and not just with our minds, but also with our hearts and even our spirits. We can be stubborn and resistant, recalcitrant, proud. Forgive us and reshape us into the image and likeness of Jesus the Lord. And bring about good in us and through us, and bring glory to yourself. I pray that as my words are true to your word, that they may be received gladly. If my words in any way deviate or are not consistent with your word, may they be quickly forgotten. Amen. So reading now from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, beginning at verse 32. Listen closely, this is God's word. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. There may be two groups of people, a smaller group and a much bigger group. We're not sure. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. In the past, it's just been the Jews, and now it's the Jews and the Gentiles. Everyone is sort of getting together to kill Jesus. Three days later, he will rise. So it's impossible to read the Gospel of Mark and to avoid the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the third time now in Mark's short Gospel, and the most explicit time yet, That Jesus has said to his disciples that he will be rejected, that he will suffer, that he will be mocked, spit on, flogged, killed, and three days later rise. A person cannot treat these pronouncements of death and resurrection as ancillary or incidental in the story of Jesus to the person of Jesus, to one's understanding of the Christian faith 
or of following Jesus. You may know people, you may have at times wanted a Christianity without the cross, a Christianity without resurrection, but the scriptures do not know such a faith. A person can't treat these pronouncements as ancillary, incidental. They are key to everything Mark writes. Everything points to and moves toward Jesus' cross and toward resurrection. And this section we're reading this morning is another of Mark's literary sandwiches. We've talked about those in past months. It begins about Jesus. It ends with Jesus. It begins about Jesus' mission, and it ends with Jesus' mission. An examination of Jesus' disciples and what it means to be his disciples and to follow Jesus uh, makes it the peanut butter and jelly or the middle part of that sandwich. But at the beginning and at the end, it's all about Jesus, who he is, his mission, and his purpose. They are about Jesus and his heart. After a couple of years of public ministry in and around the northern section of Israel, in an upper third of Israel called Galilee, Jesus with his disciples in tow now heads south toward Jerusalem. The last couple of weeks he was in an area called Perea on the eastern side of the river Jordan as he made his way down to Judah where Jerusalem was. This is where we find him now. Mark writes next, with Jesus leading the way, meaning that Jesus wasn't meandering. Jesus knew where he was going. Jesus knew why he was going. Jesus knew what awaited him. There is nothing accidental. And Mark tells us that Jesus' disciples again were astonished, quote, just as they had been astonished in the previous section, which we read last week, astonished then at Jesus' teaching that it's harder for a wealthy person to get into the kingdom of God or to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And now they're astonished that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. It seems that they had a sense that Jesus was headed for trouble. The Pharisees who had been hounding Jesus in Perea and in other places were from Jerusalem. That was their place. That was their headquarters. And so Jesus is heading directly and intentionally into unfriendly territory. And the disciples now guessed that their fate was likely tied to his. Nevertheless, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were part of Jesus' inner circle, you remember a couple of chapters ago, they made it up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, Jesus' special disciples. They assumed they were special, favored, exceptional. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus' teacher. They said, we want you to do for us whatever you ask, revealing their still childishness or immaturity, because sometimes that's a question that children ask their parents. I'm gonna ask you a question, mom, dad, I want you to say yes, okay? I'm gonna ask you a question, and I just want you to say yes. And Jesus understands what's going on there, and he doesn't say no, but he listens and welcomes their question. He doesn't say yes, but nor does he say no. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And they wanted glory. They wanted prominence. They wanted power. They wanted positions of authority and prestige, respect and honor. Not unlike most people. We may not want to sit on a big throne, but we all crave, want, attention, honor, respect, 
and in various ways power, prestige. And again, Jesus doesn't say yes, but nor does he say no. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they seem to quickly answer. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. And it's a clear reference to his cup of suffering, which he will pray on the Thursday evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. Take this cup of suffering from me. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. And be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, a baptism of death. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant these places belong to those to whom or for whom they have been prepared. When the ten, in other words, the rest of the twelve disciples heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And why are they indignant? They're not so much indignant that James and John go to Jesus and ask this question. They're indignant because James and John got to Jesus before they did. Because they're human. And they're the same kind of disciples. And they're not fully there, not fully mature, not fully spiritually grown. And they want those same kind of things. The ten are indignant. They want some of Jesus' glory. They want what they sense will be his. They want their own rule and power. Verse 42. Jesus called them together. Another teaching moment. You know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them or they gain mastery over them with power or they subdue them with power. To which Jesus declares, not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, which must have sounded as hilariously absurd to Jesus' disciples as Jesus' description of a camel going through the eye of a needle. Ha, ha, ha. Because they lived in this ultra hierarchical world and servants were near the bottom and slaves were at the very bottom and no one wants to be a servant and no one certainly ever wants to be a slave and yet Jesus who came ushering in the kingdom of God or the reign of God or the rule of God pronounces this startling reversal or overturning of every human and social reality they had ever known and there was more for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom or a payment for many. And now he's talking about himself again. This section began with Jesus talking for the third time in Mark's gospel. And when Jesus says something multiple times and when Mark records something multiple times, we really need to pay attention. This section began with Jesus talking about being killed and rising. And now he's talking about that being killed and rising as a ransom or a payment for the sins of many. Interesting, the word many there, the idea doesn't mean that there are a lot who are not included. It's rather, uh, it leans toward uh, an inclusive idea rather than an exclusive or a limited idea. You remember back in chapter 8 now, at the turning point of Mark's gospel, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
And Jesus' disciples gave them a variety of answers. John the Baptist, one of the prophets, maybe Elijah come back. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied correctly, you are the Christ, which means Messiah in Greek. And while Jesus accepted Peter's response as true, Jesus proceeded to refer to himself not then as Christ, but as you remember, Son of Man. This elusive, mysterious term out of the book of Daniel that was loaded with all kinds of Old Testament meaning of sort of the meeting of a God and man in one person. As a way of indicating now that he would not be the sort of political, military, or Christ or Messiah figure that Peter or anyone else was expecting back in chapter 8 at that turning point in Mark's gospel. And now here again, Jesus refers to himself, his favorite way of referring to himself as son of man. And he describes himself as almost exactly the opposite of who the Jews were looking for and expecting and wanting and hoping. Again, overturning their ideas of him by the, t- the terms and the language and the words that he uses to refer to himself. Instead, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a redeeming payment for many. This was not what James and John were expecting when they sneak into Jesus with their question. It is not what the other ten were expecting either. And so all of their ideas and visions about who the Christ would be and what the Christ would be about would have to be amended, adjusted, tweaked a little bit. No. Rather, all of their ideas and visions about who the Christ would be would have to be completely thrown out and put back together from the ground up in the likeness of Jesus who... 500 plus years earlier had been described by the prophet Isaiah subtly but clearly when you see it and look for it as a servant. And some of us still today need to completely let go of, surrender some of the not so accurate ideas that we hold, that we cling to, that we've grown up with about Messiah, Christ, Jesus, and about what it means to be his disciples, to follow him, to be his apprentices. James and John's questions for Jesus were about what he could do for them. Too often we go to Jesus only with questions, requests, appeals, petitions about what he can do for us to bring glory to our lives, to bring good things to our lives, to bring blessing to our lives. And of course, God wants to bless and teach and heal and reconcile and encourage, absolutely. God does those sorts of things all of the time, gladly. And yet Jesus called his disciples to a kind of life that was fundamentally different than the one for which the world clamors and the world which and the one which we naturally seek. As James and John and the others ten angled for power, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Let's say that together. Not so with you. Again, 
Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Which, if you remember back to chapter 9, Jesus said something very similar about that. And again, when Jesus repeats things, or when Mark repeats things for Jesus in Mark's limited space in his gospel, we need to pay attention. Describing Jesus to the Christians in Philippi, the Apostle Paul later writes, That though Jesus was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be used for his own advantage, but instead made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And so imagine Jesus. Imagine Jesus. We're going to cycle through some slides. Maybe not. Imagine Jesus as servant. Imagine Jesus as waiter. Imagine Jesus as busboy. Imagine Jesus as custodian. Imagine Jesus as caregiver. Imagine Jesus as hospice worker. Imagine Jesus as one of the Dalit people in India who clean sewers for a living. Imagine Jesus in any variety of roles as a servant. As one who does the things that no one else wants to do as one who does the things that are below other people, as one who humbles himself volitionally, willfully, and even eagerly to take not the high place in a society, but the lower and the lowest places in our world. Imagine Jesus. And we read in John's Gospel. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or he showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was in progress. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He had everything. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. Therefore, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus' human actions, his visible actions, his tangible actions, always pointed to his divine mission and purpose. Exhibited most importantly on the cross. And at the same time, Jesus' actions modeled for his disciples the way of living and life to which he was calling them now. Now, when one is asked to picture in one's mind what it means to be a Christian or what a Christian looks like, what may come to our minds is someone sitting in a church pew in a sanctuary. Someone bowing in prayer, 
someone reading a Bible, someone singing songs, or something like that. And none of those would be wrong, but consider this. In the words of New Testament scholar James Edwards, Jesus' message in our passage is not an admonition to behave in a certain way as much as a description of the way things actually are in the kingdom of God and even among disciples of the kingdom. Thus, to fail in being a servant is not simply to fall short of an ideal condition, but to stand outside of an existing condition that corresponds to the kingdom of God. It's not about not being good at it. It's about missing the boat altogether. And Edwards continues. At no place do the ethics of the kingdom of God clash more vigorously with the ethics of the world than in the matters of power and service. In a decisive reversal of values, Jesus speaks of greatness in service rather than greatness of power, prestige, and authority. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. The preeminent virtue of God's kingdom is not power and not even freedom, but service. The preeminent virtue of God's kingdom, according to Jesus, is not power and not even freedom, but service. If we fail to grasp this way in which Jesus not only identifies himself, but also invites and calls his disciples into, and not once in Mark's gospel, but twice and more than that over and over and over by his example. If we fail to grasp this, we have failed to grasp so much of the identity of Jesus and the way of Jesus. We may be afraid that if we take the very nature of a servant, we may miss opportunities for upward mobility or be hampered, be hindered by a servant-like disposition. I encourage you, however, to consider Jimmy Carter and those like him. Service, serving, voluntary slavery in service to others as a choice, is not antithetical to God's kingdom, but it's the way of God's kingdom. It's not about either what one does for a living or what so much one does outwardly, physically, as much as it is also a way of the heart, a way of understanding, and eventually, hopefully, a way of being that puts others first, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Not meaning that one doesn't have value or worth. That's not the message at all. But to put others in line in front of oneself and to serve them. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote, Not everyone can be famous, but everyone can be great, because greatness in the kingdom of God is determined by service. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know about Plato or Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. 
Henry Nouwen wrote, the society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go is up. Making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record, that's what draws attention, gets us on the front page of the newspaper, and offers us the rewards of money and fame. The way of Jesus, however, is radically different. It is the way not of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It is going to the bottom, staying behind the sets, and choosing the last place. Why is the way of Jesus worth choosing? Because it is the way of the kingdom, the way Jesus took, and the way that brings everlasting life. I am humbled by many people in this congregation and many who have gone before me and us who have embraced this courageously and in faith and who have been blessings to any and many, many and most of us. I've been encouraged recently in a world that wants to put itself above on top in the limelight in positions of glory by several, three people actually in the last few months who in the congregation and some new to the congregation have said, how can I serve? How can I serve in the church? Can you point me toward places to serve? Bam. That is a kingdom of this world buster. And a person's service doesn't have to be in the church or according to the church. There are countless ways to serve one's neighbors, to serve people who can never pay you back, to serve people in one's household, to take the position, the role of a servant. And so be made into the image and likeness of Jesus. And so to enter the kingdom of God. And so to inherit eternal life. And so to be saved. As we talked about last week. I simply want to encourage you in this direction. And so on your way out this morning, there's a little blue piece of paper like this that the ushers can hand to you if you want one. It's called Opportunities to Serve that gives you so many ways to serve in the congregation, in the body. If you're online, uh, the same opportunity list will be available in the email that comes out to everyone who's subscribed after the worship service. And I encourage you to digest all of this. If there is no element of serving and service in your life, the kingdom may still be far off. We don't do this in order to be good, but because God has invited us into his grace and invited us into a kingdom where he promises life, where he modeled it, where he lived it, where he was it. And that and that alone, eventually and now, is our hope and our confidence. Let us pray. No one would have ever guessed, God, that you would come among us voluntarily as a servant. As one who washed feet, as one who walked alongside, as one who got dirty, as one who would lower himself to the depths. As one who would offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of many. 
as one who would love in ways that ended on a cross. No one would have imagined, we could never have imagined, people could not have made this up. Draw us with joy and gladness into your world, into your kingdom, into yourself. A kingdom where we might learn over and over the blessing of serving. Humble us. We can't and won't humble ourselves. Forgive our sin, our pride, our resistance, our ambivalence, our reluctance. And lead us in the way everlasting. For your name's sake, for your glory, for your delight and joy, and for the blessing of the world and the blessing of your people. Amen.